just like me getting a skateboard in fourth grade, the film Spiderhead falls off real quick. Welcome to Films Lit. <laughs> My name is Danny. I am the film expert. My name is Laura Sheher, and I am the lit expert of this podcast. And this is the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or television adaptation. Welcome, Season 7. Yay! This is our second episode recording Married. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, we started this podcast almost two years ago to the day when we were engaged that's true oh i guess we did have our no we weren't engaged <laughs> we weren't well, we engaged weren't yet. engaged but i was thinking the year mark yeah was the first of june right was our first drop yeah exactly yeah so what a few years it's been mm-hmm. this podcast has never not known covid <gasps> oh that's so sad and it's very apt because this is a covid movie it was our... filmed in yeah. 2020 and it very much feels like a COVID production. A COVID baby. Yeah, like limited location, mostly takes place in one room. Limited cast. You can you can space the people out. They're yeah. literally in different rooms. Exactly. Observing quote unquote subjects. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty COVID friendly. Yeah. Well, welcome to the pod. This is a full spoilers pod. So we're spoiling everything in the short story today and everything in the movie you have been warned today we are covering the 2022 film it just came out joseph kaczynski's spiderhead yeah this is why we keep an open space when we're doing our schedule for new drops because this movie didn't have a lot of pre-hype i feel which is nuts we'll get to it in a second Um, and and part of the reason i don't think it did was because it's uh was preceded by a little movie named Top Gun. <laughs> well, you thought you would think they would market the hell out of that because so Joseph Kaczynski directed Top Gun Maverick, which just came out, which which also stars Miles Teller. Right, and I'm guessing if you're listening to this podcast, you've seen Top Gun Maverick because it just made a billion, <laughs> a billion dollars, dollars today this as of recording yeah. this episode. We just saw him collider. Yeah. This just in. Uh, Top the Gun numbers. Maverick made a billion dollars. Absolutely nuts, but well-deserved. I mean, what an amazing Guess who saw film. it four times between the two of us? Us. <laughs> Us. You saw it two times. <laughs> I, I actually, yeah, I guess yeah. We, we can't talk about Maverick uh, outside of this discussion because it's not based on anything. Right. But let me tell you, as American hating as I am, loved the movie. Oh, it's, pu- yeah, it's pure Americana cinema, but like, Propaganda. but yeah. when something rips that hard and is that well made and fun, who cares? No, honestly, I, so Danny and I didn't see it together, which is funny, but I ended up being out of town for three weeks after our wedding and Couldn't I Couldn't stand me it, after the honeymoon. Yeah, I just ran out of town. Um, but I, so I didn't see it in IMAX, but I did see it with a 4D experience with the like rumbling seats, kind of like if you go to Disneyland and you yeah. see like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids or Captain EO. Yeah. Uh, it was amazing. You should have seen my face the whole time. I was just like, this is amazing. Well, that was my, it was so I, fun. I saw it IMAX opening weekend, which I never see things opening weekend. And I don't still theater shy. Right. For, for multiple reasons, you, not just COVID. Right. For, you more so than me. I just yeah. hate crowds in movies because 
because people aren't well behaved. But this was an instance where everyone was surprisingly very mature. They laughed at all the places where there were jokes. They cheered at all. I mean, every single flying scene is immaculate and pulse pounding. So they cheered when they're supposed to cheer. They were silent when they're supposed to be silent. Everyone teared up when Tom Cruise said, talk to me, goose. It's (laughs) just a mind blowing experience. Four quadrant, crowd pleasing, a little cheesy in parts, but you give it a pass because... Better than the original. Oh, excuse me. Oh, yeah. Oh, I I agree. I agree. A little cheesy, but you give it a pass. And I like the original too, but the original doesn't really have a plot. It's a little meandering, which is the new one has a distinct mission. They are practicing throughout the whole movie. The stakes are the highest you can get for a story like this. And ironically too, I think the strength is that they don't even really go into the reason why they have to bomb this specific place. They're just like, we got this mission. It's a uranium factory. You get it. So... Anyway, yeah. so there's a there's a little eclipse over this Spiderhead film, yeah. as we started saying. But yeah. you would think Netflix would be like from the director of Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. yeah. And literally, there there have been memes made out of the fact that this new movie Spiderhead, which came out a month after Top Gun Maverick, there have been memes about how it hasn't been marketed at all. And Netflix yeah. kind of just dropped it, and it stuck. Chris Hemsworth, a major A-list star, everyone knows who he is. Yeah. And Miles Teller, well, who now who's right, and yeah, Miles Teller, who is just Tom Cruise when <laughs> the original Top Gun came. Yeah. Out. <laughs> Basically. He, exactly. Yeah. yeah. He Miles Teller is blowing up from Top Gun. As he, I think he's a great actor the, too. Oh, Whiplash. Yeah. Amazing Whip- movie. Yeah. So. It's weird how it feels as though Netflix didn't take the clear opportunity to market this movie off of the hype of of Top Gun Maverick. It's a little nuts. Perhaps they weren't really proud. Well, that's of that the was movie. my question. I was going to ask: Isn't that sometimes because if a movie isn't as good as they thought it might turn out, sometimes they'll quietly drop a show or a movie and just no, be like, eh. Yeah, normally for other studios, yes, but Netflix oh, notoriously is shameless with mm-hmm. their marketing. Yeah. And they... Well, maybe they're cinching their belts, budget-wise, just because perhaps. of the layoffs and stocks and stuff that... Perhaps. There, uh, I don't a... know. I'm just throwing out is a, that's a very industry news as we say right i just i don't think it's I, i'm just baffled by the um the marketing decisions by netflix to quietly release this I, I mean for movies i mean even on tiktok you start to see little trailers here and that's the market we need to go to for a story like this the show chris hemsworth everyone finds him attractive oh, like yeah put him He's front and si- star right yeah because he has thor coming out yeah, exactly he, he literally has a new marvel movie coming yeah. out so yeah. it's um, weird the other thing that i was gonna say too though the you make a good argument about advertising on tiktok because can the movie festival who historically has never made marketing deals with any platform this year partnered with tiktok for exclusive coverage rights because Whoa. they know that's where the millennials are. Yeah. That's where their advertising is coming from. Only TikTok. Literally exclusively signed with TikTok. Because yeah. the marketing executives at Kane like recognize that, understand that, and that's where they're going for their advertising and their hype now. Mm-hmm. Which is like so again, you make a really good argument that TikTok is where they should have gone. Especially have has anyone who's listening heard of Miles Teller Thirst? 
It's all over TikTok. You can't scroll through five videos without there being a little beach dance. Yeah, it's all over TikTok, all over Twitter. Twitter, Um, Twitter. Instagram's kind of dying at the moment. But Facebook. Yeah, Facebook. (laughs) I'm the one on Facebook. Yeah. But anyway, I just wanted to slide that in about TikTok because I read that in Variety last week. Yeah. And it's it's really big news. Mm -hmm. Because, again, Kane has never partnered with a marketing platform. I didn't. I didn't. They're even kind know. of like the elite, like indie kind of. Right. You know, exactly. Thing. But no, they're going to TikTok now. They went with TikTok. Wow. Pretty incredible. Influencer Those, culture. Yeah, the French. But that's know where what's it, up. that's where they go. That's yeah. where you have to go now. Like, yeah. And that's who's going. I mean, millennials and Gen Z. They're they're going back to movies. They're flooding the market. Mm-hmm. So it's not just dads who went to go see Top Gun Maverick. It's right. everyone. I saw it and loved it. Yeah. I was shocked. I mean, I when I say yeah, I mean anyway. We've, we've gotten off topic. Yes. Anyway, the marketing for this movie was surprisingly underwhelming. The movie isn't terrible, no. but I think that we have some issues, especially with the end. Oh, huge. Um, he, he, yeah. Huge. Um, yeah, I completely agree. The movie is certainly watchable, and the first half is compelling like the short story is. So the short story... Released in 2010 in The New Yorker, written by George Saunders, the prolific... Short storyist. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, before we get into our backgrounds with the short story, because I have a history with it. Oh, um, I don't think I know this. Oh, it's just a short little history, but... I love learning let, things about Let's you. get into the synopsis, just a quick synopsis. So, for both the movie and the short story... In a state-of-the-art penitentiary run by brilliant visionary Steve Abnasty, inmates wear a surgically attached device that administers dosages of mind-altering drugs in exchange for commuted sentences. There are no bars, no cells, no orange jumpsuits. In Spiderhead, the name of the facility, incarcerated volunteers are free to be themselves until they're not. At times, they're a better version. Need to lighten up? There's a drug for that, or at a loss for words, there's a drug for that, too. But inmate Jeff, who's played by Miles Teller in the movie, starts to question the rat maze he's involved in. And who knows where the end will be. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that pretty much sums it up. And uh, like you said, that's pretty much the movie and the short story. Right. Yeah. Uh, with a very major end divergence. Oh, yeah. There's a huge. So the short story is what? About printed out. It's like nine pages. It's eight with a cover page. So seven pages of text right and three columns per page the, like a newspaper in the original yeah. new yorker publication yeah gotcha, gotcha. so yeah came out <laughs> yeah <laughs> so came out in 2010 so let's get into our journeys with the material so i've mentioned this class before on this podcast it's one of those you know those college classes that you take and you go in not expecting much and they end up altering your entire life and yes. you, you you're illuminated with this new knowledge that you never knew rhetoric with dr flory mm. <laughs> that's that's my class so i had to read this for my writing class freshman year because i i did not get a five on my ap lit exam and bu only took fives for you to skip the class mm-hmm. so i'm like oh man i i got a three uh anyways i went into this class begrudgingly and ended up 
opening my mind to a new world of stories and sci-fi literature. So it's called Violence and Technology. I'm so jealous. Every time you mention this class, I yeah. just get jealous because I, I feel like that's something Dr. Flory could teach so well. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> for sure. So this class introduced me to Kurt Vonnegut first, mm. who I hadn't read up until college. I did think you were very deep when you suggested that I read Titans of... Sirens, Sirens of, Ti of Titan. Right, exactly. Yeah. And I hadn't read it yet. And, um, and then we had to read this one short story by George Saunders. And I, I loved it. It's very similar to a Vonnegut short story called The Euphio Question, where in that short story, there's this new device that makes people happy. And the similarity is that when the device is on, the writing style changes. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of tell when people are being influenced by the machine as opposed to not. Same thing in Spiderhead. I love, that's one of my favorite details of George Saunders' writing is that the writing style changes to reflect the character's mental state or their current chemical balance. I noticed that too. Yeah, it was really great. It, it, there's almost like a text feel, like a, like a texting <laughs> phone feel. Exactly, when... yeah. The story opens up and Jeff is uh, being tested by this new drug called Earth Admire, and Abnesty is asking him to describe the nature and the vista, and at first it's just like little short little words like, oh, it looks good, it's clear, and then they administer Verbalouse, which targets the part of your brain, it makes you more eloquent and uh, talkative. And then, yeah, the writing changes to, it was as if the garden had become a sort of embodiment of the domestic dreams forever intrinsic to human consciousness. Whoa. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And then right after his session, he goes back to words like, it was something about the bushes and whatnot. Mm -hmm. It's just so brilliant. So I fell in love with this writing style. For years, I had loved this story and looked up other George Saunders short stories, just like I did with Kurt Vonnegut. Again, very similar writers. They have quirky sci-fi stories in the not-so-distant future. And then a year ago, Netflix released the trailer for their upcoming films, and they had Spiderhead in there. And I go, oh, I wonder if that's related to Escape from Spiderhead. And I didn't think of anything of it. And then about a month before it was released, Netflix finally released a trailer for it. I'm like, oh my goodness, Laura, we got to do this for the podcast. Yeah. Then Top Gun Maverick was released. Incredible movie, one of the best of this year. It's currently my favorite of the year. Mm -hmm. And it was like they just completely forgot about this movie and this brilliant story, and then you we watch the movie, and the first half is great. Yeah. I liked it a lot. It was very loyal to the story, but was making some necessary changes to expand it out into a feature length. And then it just absolutely starts to fall apart around midway. Mm -hmm. Stupid decisions start to pile up. There's mm -hmm. something that we talked about in our previous episode, which we'll mention again when it yeah. comes up. <laughs> But I think it. I think this is just a real result of poor writing. By mm -hmm. the script was adapted by Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick, who wrote the Deadpool movies, which mm -hmm. I like a lot. I know it's kind of that kind of humor has been overdone these days. But I like Ryan Reynolds a lot. I like the Deadpool movies a lot. But the script simply isn't there, where you can poke holes in the story here and there, mm -hmm. uh, very easily. And I was just really disappointed with the end product. Again, not a terrible movie, but it's it's the worst kind of bad movie in that it's good until it's not. It almost makes it across the finish line. Right. And then 
doesn't. Yeah. Right. But Laura, you have a particular connection to this type of story because of your profession. Get into it. That's true. Well, and I guess I can talk a little bit about it just because I don't have any relationship to the book or short story. Um, you know, I actually just finished the short story this afternoon, so. <laughs> Hell yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's one of those stinky things where when you work in an industry and then you see a movie or a TV show about it, you're like, that couldn't happen. Right. <laughs> like, I'm sure this happens a lot with, like, crime investigation. Or doctors. Like that, or doctors. Oh my gosh, with yeah. like a house or something. In yeah. fact, there are, like, multiple social media accounts of like nurses or doctors react to like house or something like yeah. you know what i mean so like so there have been a few movies and shows about pharmaceutical companies recently well describe what you do oh so i work in a clinical quality assurance group at a pharmaceutical company that's relatively small we don't have a drug on the market but we're developing a couple and so so very relevant very to the story relevant to drug development <laughs> yeah and so i'm gonna try to set aside the complete nonsensical nature of every single thing that happens in this movie the framework of this movie mm -hmm. because i do want to focus on the themes because yeah. i think the themes especially in the short story which is much deeper yes. and I think uses the drug development as a really successful way of discussing like for example greed and consent things of that nature I think it does really successfully um the movie changes it in a way that is interesting but literally like could not happen like so many of the events yeah could not happen so I I just want to say PSA, especially because there's so much misinformation about approved drugs these days. Approved drugs these days. This kind of development just never could happen. So just on its face, like in reality, I just don't want people thinking like, oh, like could could someone be used in this way to get a drug approved? No. Gotcha. <laughs> um, so I'm just gonna say like the framework is a little silly if you work in the industry, but it is like the industry is so specific. Not even just to like drug approval, but like the kind of drug you're working on is yeah. so specific that like sure. I just wanted if there are any questions that arise, I'd be happy to answer them. Yeah. Um, but I do want to focus more on like the thematic stuff because it it is kind of an interesting thing. We when we were finished with this movie, we talked a little bit about a movie called Side Effects, which yeah. is kind of similar about the greed that drug development can foster in people. Yeah. Um. So I just wanted to say that up front. Yeah, I have a few questions that I'll ask you along the way. About... I, hope, I hope you can learn alongside. And, and again, I mean, I've been working in this industry only for about five or six years. So I don't know everything. I don't have all of the answers. Um, but mm -hmm. it is like it. It's an interesting thing to talk about. I do really enjoy what I do. And so, yeah, if if anyone because, again, like we they do talk about the themes of consent. And that's something that's like really important. Yeah. especially in the qu clinical quality assurance career or profession because consent is literally protection of the subject is literally number one in everyone's mind and heart when you're working in this profession so for example like prisoners can be used in drug development clinical mm. trials for sure that's totally fine yeah but there's a specific way of writing informed consent forms that would protect a prisoner <laughs> from being like mm -hmm 
bargained with or like have have a commuted sentence held over their head that could never happen right and the movie goes with that idea in the opposite way where they're creating a drug where you can get consent right but but that's the paradox of you cannot necessarily test that drug because you need to get someone's consent so if you're testing a drug that can alter someone's mind to give in and give consent it's like, how can you, re- how, it, right, a paradox. You so, can- yeah, so yeah, and, and it is interesting to think about, but like legally in the real world, the only way that you ever could, well, there are two things underlying that. The first thing is the declaration of Helsinki. You can't really develop a drug that's not going to be beneficial to anybody's health. And like the idea that you could alter someone's informed consent decisions would not really be helpful right. for that. But also if there were anybody that was you know, incapacitated in some way. And that could mean on a drug or in a coma, anything like that. There would have to be a legally authorized representative to give consent for the subject. Mm-hmm. So like even a doctor asking that subject, can I administer this drug? And if they're a coma in a coma, they couldn't say yes. And so like, it's illegal to give them a drug. Right. So because I can yeah. see the screenwriters <laughs> being like, well, Abnesti is a mad scientist, and he would just lie to the FDA. Right, right. But but you're saying is that even if you lie, his findings wouldn't be accepted because he didn't go through. Well, yeah, and and again, I don't want to get like too. I don't want to drill down too specifically. It's but like, interesting. But like, so before you start a clinical trial, you start with uh, non-clinical trials. You start with rats or yeah. dogs or you know animals like that. But then at every single step stage of drug development you have to submit what's called a protocol and that's reviewed by like an institutional review board or an ethics committee and they say like they literally review your protocol and they say this isn't ethical so you can't start this trial Mm -hmm. and like like you're saying like i guess in kind of an isolated situation you could have an investigator or a principal investigator which is what steve abnasty is um and just like completely go off book and like not submit a protocol at all but that they're in a prison. So it's like a regulated space. So that mm-hmm. couldn't, that it yeah. couldn't happen. Yeah, like, this is, this is so, why like Elon Musk can't go out and test on prisoners and make a drug. Yeah, this, yeah. it's why any, anybody, like even, even if you have an approved drug, but a doctor prescribes it for like an indication that it hasn't been approved for, let's say, let's say the doctor prescribes like, like keep it really simple, like Tylenol for cancer. Mm-hmm. That's illegal because it hasn't been, it hasn't gone through like clinical trials and it hasn't gone through like, it's not approved for that indication. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? So even an approved drug for an unapproved indication couldn't even mm-hmm. happen. So again, I don't want to get too far into details because this is what I do and I don't want to like distract from the fact that I think it is a really interesting story. Yeah. So... That's my relationship with this whole thing. So there, there are a couple things where I was like, oh, you know, that will never, that would never happen. And I want to make sure that people are clear on that so that people don't see this movie and they're like, oh, that's how the COVID vaccine was developed. It's like, no, that absolutely not. Um, a lot of the stuff would be illegal, but it's there to tell a story. So mm-hmm. that's what's important. That's yeah. what we'll focus on. Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> we all know that the COVID vaccine was tested on frogs and they made the frogs gay. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's not true that's misinformation <laughs> false fact that's fact um, so 
let's get into the analysis. So the movie directed by Joseph Kaczynski, as we said, directed Top Gun, amazing. The rest of his movies are visually decadent and mm. wonderful. He directed Tron Legacy, which is an entertaining movie. Not the most well-written movie, but has one of the best soundtracks of all time by oh. Daft Punk. Oh, and I was going to say the composer of this score also worked with Daft Punk to compose Tron. Oh, no way. Yeah. He cool. Col- he collaborated collaborated with Daft Punk. Awesome. Uh, he also directed Oblivion with Tom Cruise. That's where he met Tom Cruise. And Oblivion is all right. It's a little silly and stupid and derivative of other sci-fi stories. But, you know, yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a fine time. Then he directed Only the Brave with Miles Teller. So he's worked with Miles Teller three times. I haven't seen Only the Brave. Uh, I've heard it's well made, but yeah, it's the one Kaczynski project where I, that I haven't seen. And then Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun was supposed to come out in 2019, but then it was needed to do some reshoots, <laughs> and then Painful it was delayed. Yep, it was, yeah, it was delayed until 2020, and then as we all know, the pandemic happened, delayed till 2021, then finally delayed to 2022 where it eventually came out, and it was a massive critical and financial hit. It is coming back in IMAX theaters as of this recording. Mm-hmm. But yeah, while he was waiting for Top Gun to come out, he made this little movie that Netflix had bought. So it was a Netflix movie first. The writers were first going to direct the movie themselves, but they've been delayed with Deadpool 2 and Deadpool 3, which they're currently writing. So they gave the project to Kaczynski, who wanted to make a little movie when he was in quarantine, and this started production right after quarantine ended. In Australia. Yeah. Yeah, right around the time that uh, the movie Elvis started production, which is the movie that gave uh, Tom Hanks COVID. Remember, he was the first... Yeah. So these were filmed at... at Is it really? Yeah, so similar similar times. I did not know that. Right, yeah, right around right around the same oh, area. Had that been announced that that's what he was working on when they were in Australia and caught COVID? I mean, they didn't announce it, but that was the That was Yeah. That's so interesting cuz I we've told this story on the podcast before, but that's when we were at the Tame Impala concert. We were like yeah. walking into this into the We were walking into the forum when that news flash came out. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Oh, thanks for connecting those dots yeah. for me. That's so interesting. No problem. That's what I'm here for. So <laughs> let's get into the big changes between the short story and the movie. Well, I bet the script was longer than seven pages. Yes. <laughs> you can start there. Um, yeah. Well, I... So uh, character Lizzie is mm-hmm. not in the short story. There's a romantic interest, which unfortunately I think is one of the downfalls, causes one of the downfalls of the movie because I read a few articles that that kind of pointed this out to me. I wasn't quite sure what people's issue was with a romantic character or a romantic interest because I thought it actually opened Miles Teller's character, Jeff, up yeah. so that we didn't have to have a voiceover because that's a fucking pet peeve of mine. I hate voiceovers. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it kind of opened him up because she was someone to confide in. And at one point I thought maybe she was reporting back to Steve. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, and and so I, like, didn't trust her. I thought she was an interesting character. But then after reading a few reviews and think pieces, I came to agree with some people's criticism of her character, which is that 
she becomes this kind of like promise of the future after they escape. And that's kind of like the big, I guess, spoiler alert that they escape just by like running away out yeah. of this like high security prison. They basically just like punch a few other inmates and it's just, very like, messy how they break, yeah, yeah, break they out just... of the prison, which is very messy and t- way too simple. Yeah. Um, and then, so she becomes kind of this like, oh, like, let's leave the mess behind. We have a future together. And they don't, it's kind of like one of those um, princess, like Disney princess movies where it's like, oh, I found my true love. And now like the movie's over and our lives are going to be perfect now. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I get that. You know, I think their romance kind of simplifies the end of the movie. And I yeah. don't, I, don't uh, I think it should have been a little more complicated, but that's, that's how it ends. <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. I think what they're trying to do was smart because the thesis statement among other things about of both a short story and the movie is that you can modify momentarily humans and you can change their behavior here and there but you cannot alter someone's innate humanity so in the movie the end goal for abnesti is to successfully um, administer b6 the drug B6 that makes someone obedient. But Jeff, because he has this innate humanity in him and this love that overrides the drug and he even overrides Lizzie's crime mm-hmm. that, that yeah. she, which I mean is terrible, but it's not like she intentionally murdered her kid. Mm-hmm. Right. She left her child in a locked car and uh, yeah. it was hot and, so I think I think that's kind of a free pass for Jeff. They should have like I don't know. They shouldn't have made her intentionally kill a kid, but they should have done something else for. So it was more of a moral dilemma for yeah, Jeff. Yeah. Because again, terrible, absolutely terrible tragedy. Tragedy. Yeah, yeah. But it is a tra- is more of a tragedy than it is a crime. But that's kind of the thesis statement of both um, the book. And both the story and the movie is that you can alter emotions and people momentarily, oh, but so but you cannot you cannot fundamentally change someone's, I guess you would say, soul, like a humanity. Mm-hmm. Because in in the short story, <laughs> so the big change, we'll just get right to it. Jeff dies via Darken flocks. Self-administered, self-administered dark and flock. So essentially commits suicide yeah. because he is being forced to choose between Heather and Rachel, the two people he has uh, slept with through the tests. And he, instead of making a choice, a complete random choice, his own humanity overrides the drugs in his system. So he chooses to administer the drugs to himself, thus proving the point that no matter what Abnesti gives to him, that you cannot alter someone's mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and to be fair, I think Journey Smollett does a great job with Lizzie. Yeah, oh She's yeah. She's great. She was the only saving grace about Friday Night Lights. That fucking show is a dumpster fire. But she was <laughs> Jesse great. Plemons is in that show. Oh, yeah, I do love And Jesse Kyle Plemons. Chandler's in. But, Wait okay, a second. Okay, that show's no, great. No, it's not. No, it's not. In, like, season one, fucking Jesse <laughs> Plemons murders someone, and then his dad is just, like, a, a, his fucking father, who is a cop, helps him burn a car, and then it disappears. He ne- There's n- <laughs> nothing that happens with that plot line. It's purely a cliffhanger, so that 
season people would watch season two doesn't matter that shows a dumpster fire it's a piece of shit um journey smollett is great though she's, yeah she's really good in it i like her a lot and she's great in this but yeah i i didn't even think about the fact that it's kind of just a uh a tragedy rather than an actual crime that she commits even um well i think it's an interesting moral dilemma about jeff's crime which yes. is also different he in the short story was in the middle of a fight with a peer and felt i think a little bit emasculated because he was physically bigger than this kid mm-hmm. and, and he, still losing yeah and still losing and so he struck him with a brick and the peer died um whereas in the movie he gets into a vehicle and kills two peers because he's driving intoxicated and hits a tree and he's the only survivor. Yeah. So he's got survivor's guilt, uh, which actually I thought was an interesting twist because something that I liked about the movie too was that the prisoners actually start feeling like they deserve Dark and Flux. Yeah. I liked that a lot. Same. And, and especially with Journey Smollett's character, Lizzie, I actually really liked that she feels so guilty even though, you know, it was a tragedy she feels so guilty that she starts begging Miles Teller to give her Dark and Flux because she literally feels like she's a piece of shit that doesn't deserve anything better but to like relive the darkest moment of her life. Mm-hmm. That was really interesting. And that, that took the story to a really dark place. But then instead of having the idea that like Jeff is such a pure, like he literally can't even passively kill someone else just by sitting there and not choosing whether, mm-hmm. so in the, in the story, he's actually, Heather's already died, but the PI, uh, Steve, is forcing him to give Rachel darkened flocks. He's like, you have to. Yeah. There's not a choice. Like, you have to. And he's literally so, he's so, he feels so responsible for the death of the other kid that he gives it to himself. Like, that, even that passive possible murder by administering dark and flox like he won't take the responsibility so he commits suicide like that's dark and i just feel like the end of the movie doesn't the end of the movie turns into this weird like happy ending action movie whereas i think the tone in the beginning set up this really introspective sci-fi yes ponderance piece yes kind of like ex machina or something oh very similar it could have been in the vein of ex machina with this really isolated, brilliant doctor who thought he had something figured out, and then a bunch of moral issues came up, and the drugs ended up working against him. Suddenly, we have this like weird action 15 minutes yeah. that's like, oh, and that's... everything is happy, and the doctor dies because he's on his own drugs. Like, And it's very silly, and it's retroactive writing where... The writers are like, okay, we need the characters to get to this place, so let's work backwards and write plot yeah. holes and inconsistencies and dumb decisions so our characters can get there. Oh, we should talk about a dumb decision yes. that we talked about in our last episode. Let's, let's yeah. get right to that. So uh, before we get Sorry, to that... Sorry, I don't think I punctuated for like five minutes. I think I was just talking out of my ass for five minutes. And it was all interesting. But that's the <laughs> thing. I love... Yeah, the story is very reminiscent of Ex Machina. I love, and this is going to sound silly, but I love movies where it's just people in rooms 
talking about the scientific process, like whiteboards, books, talking oh about God. experience and going over tests and things. So this story is very much in my in my wheelhouse. That's why I love Arrival because there's scenes where they just talk about the aliens' language and how it works in oh in the yes. uh, human the context of a human mind. Yes. That's also the one saving grace of Tenet. Tenet, mm -hmm. stupid movie, dumb as rocks. But it's very cool how time interpolation uh, they works. It, yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, Ex Machina, one of our favorite movies. That movie is just people in rooms for two hours, and it's the most compelling thing I've ever seen in my life. So, mm -hmm. yeah. this had a lot of promise, and the short story is so intriguing and so engaging. And that's the big difference here. The ending of the short story is about as elegant and profound as you can get. The final few sentences of the story as Jeff is dying on Darkenflox because he rams his head into the side of a table. He goes, from across the woods, as if by common accord, birds left their trees and darted upward. I joined them, flew among them. They did not recognize me as something apart from them, and I was happy, so happy, because for the first time in years and forevermore, I had not killed and never would. What he's saying this as he is dying on Darkenflox, but he also has Verbaloose yeah. in him, so he, so he's experiencing the euphoria of death, but also the mind clarity of Verbaloose as his mind is deteriorating at the same time. I mean, that is yeah, it's so beautiful. What yeah, you can't get more. You can teach a whole class on just that last sentence, but the movie is like, oh no, um, Jeff stole. Ebnesti's cell phone and is now jostling Ebnesti's medipack around and it's the medipack is administering drugs here and there and that's about it there, there's no and then he flies the plane into the side of a mountain but he's like euphoric because he's experiencing a different drug yes yeah. so let's this ties in nicely to why the writing in the movie is significantly inferior to George Saunders' writing. So we talked in the last episode about a trope that we both hate, yeah. which is the trope <laughs> is that if a character drops something on the ground and or leaves something behind for another character to pick up and learn important information. So that happens in Obi-Wan, uh, which is the whole finale of Obi-Wan. I'm not spoiling that show, but basically in the second to last episode, a character drops something and another character finds it, which leads the character to go to a place mm -hmm. because they learn something from what they found. In Goblet of Fire, Dumbledore just leaves his office wide ass open. Completely irrationally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For Harry to discover the pensive. Oh, by bumping into it. That's even worse. Yeah. That it wasn't even out. Literally, Harry bumps into a cabinet. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's so dumb. So. So lazy. In the movie, the writers were like, okay, how is Jeff going to learn that there is no protocol committee and that this is actually Steve's company and that Steve isn't really testing all the drugs. He's actually testing the secret drug, B6. Mm -hmm. So how they do this is they set up that every time... So there's an open-door policy in the uh, prison, which is something taken from the book. Mm -hmm. That's Nasty's whole mission statement to be like, look... Even though this is a prison, let's not treat it like let's treat it like a facility where we're trying to 
discover great things for society. Together. Yeah, together, yeah. Mm-hmm. yes. How they do this in the movie is that every time Steve goes out of the room, the only locked thing in the facility is his cabinet. So he puts his little notebook in the cabinet and locks it every time. I go, and you see that, there's a close-up on it. You go, oh, I wonder if that's going to be left. I wonder if there's important information in there that's going to be left Yeah, if you you go to a close-up of him closing a closet every time, I I guess that's foreshadowing. And Mm -hmm. there's a scene where Heather starts to go crazy on the darkened flocks, which is... It's a a dark scene. Scene. Happens in the the short story as well. So Abnasty puts his notebook in the little drawer and then runs out to go console Heather, which why would he do... Because he has his assistant, Mark. Verlaine. Well, oh, so that's a... I'm actually looking on IMDb now. It calls him Verlaine, which is his name in the short story, but one of the trivia facts is that he's actually always called Mark. Oh, And that's the character, that's the actor's real name is Mark Paguillo, so... Interesting. Yeah, so anyways, um, let's call him Mark. He's great, too. Side note, that that actor is really good. Hire him for something else, because he did a great job with that, like, morally conflicted Mm -hmm. turn of the assistant yeah. right Go ahead. so it's established that this facility had even though there's no guards they do have these two burly assistants that look like twins mm-hmm. so why weren't those two people um why didn't they come in to grab heather like you why would the head of the experiment you know like leave his post right i understand that the subject was freaking out but like he wouldn't be the one to leave Right? It, it, it might... Well, as, as soon as she started exhibiting self-destructive behavior, you would think that these two massively built bodyguards would be the first ones to subdue her. Yeah. Instead of Mark, who's very, you know, kind of that nerdy subtype of mm-hmm. archetypal characters. Yeah. Short, kind of thin. Um, you'd think that they'd be the first responders, or even, I highly doubt that they're nurse practitioners so even like a nurse mm-hmm. who would be able to subdue a patient more successfully than a pi and a subcoordinator mm-hmm. um yeah yeah so then uh he's there and he can't stop heather from killing herself on the darkened flocks and then steve rushes in to be like oh what the hell mark what are you doing he drops his keys right all and the way out the, out of the door, out yeah. of the door. And, and, and sorry, not to interrupt you. It is a heavy keychain of keys. Like it's yeah. got like a utility knife. It's got like <laughs> an entire ring of keys. And it hits the ground. It's like boom. Actually, yeah. Now that I think about it, why the fuck are there so many keys on that keychain when everything is open? That's a good point. That's another. That's like, another flaw. A, there shouldn't have been that many keys. Uh-huh. And B, it shouldn't have been that heavy because as soon as he heard that drop he would have turned around as yes. soon as i hear like my phone or something drop like as soon, if, I, if i am walking and i hear anything drop i turn around yes it's... but he doesn't turn around and we had literally just talked about this trope the day before and then we watched this movie and it happens again we're like this we cannot stop seeing no, this damn trope in the middle of the movie danny and i were like what we just recorded the harry potter episode we just and we're yeah. like we're like slapping each other's shoulders like are you fucking kidding me this is so lazy yeah so 
Then Jeff picks up the keys and then goes into his little closet to learn and figures out all this information. And it's a good twist that there is no protocol committee, but the way we're told it is not proper screenwriting. I learned that in Screenwriting 101 to not just have a character come across information or to like overhear information. No, your job as a screenwriter is to come up with an organic, intelligent way for your characters to learn information and for the audience to learn information. And to just have a character drop keys and come across a book is very lazy. And that all that information would be contained in the book because we don't just learn that it's Steve's company that he owns and that he's not making calls to the protocol committee, quote unquote, which again in real life would be like an IRB or an EC. There's also a bingo card that is not only information, but it's it's not direct information. Right. The character of Jeff has to infer information and then gets all of his assumptions correct, mm-hmm. which is also really lazy. Yeah. Because then like... it, you're just you're just showing. But then really at that point you're just like having a freaking PA with a bingo card yeah. under the camp, just like with a little hand double showing a bingo card to the screen and being like, hey, audience, yeah, <laughs> all of the drugs that we've talked about prior to this that are called like I-86 and, oh no, it's a- there's N- I-16, there's N-40, yeah, you know, hey, these aren't based on anything. Yeah. It's it's so lazy. Um, but I will say, I, I just want to put a little asterisk next to that. Any drug that's like pre-marketing and is just in like clinical trials, a lot of times they are given uh, product codes. So that was actually really interesting to me because I could actually see a CEO having a bingo card and being like, hey, I'm just going to, I'm going to start investigating i16 because mm-hmm. those product codes don't mean anything until you apply for like a product name through fda oh so interesting I, I actually thought that was kind of an interesting little thing i think it was by accident unfortunately because <laughs> i think the whole thing was that you know steve was so such a megalomaniac that yeah. he didn't care about what he gave patients he would basically just like come up with the chemical formula right even, even that is yeah like so sociopath insane. yeah um, yeah but but it was an interesting way because again those product codes like i've worked on product codes with like N803. I've literally worked on a product that's called N803. I've worked on a product that's called ME400, ME001. Like that's really realistic. But I think unfortunately it was just kind of like a coincidence that happened to work. Um, But yeah, he's just, I think that goes toward character building, but it falls short of actually being character building. I agree completely. It's just lazy writing. Yes. Another (laughs) instance of lazy writing. So you compare this directly to the short story. Same scene, right? Heather is freaking out on the Darken Flocks. So in the short story, Darken Flocks is treated as something that they know the effects of it, but they are testing the amount of darkened flocks and how subjects which react. Which is realistic. There, right. is, there are trials called dose escalation trials, which mm-hmm. is how you figure out like a floor and a ceiling of what a safe dose would be to different mm-hmm. types of subjects. Right. So in the movie, the characters know two things, right? They know that there is a lethal amount of a certain drug, and they also know that when the Moby pack is jostled, 
Yeah. Then flooding will occur. They're told this. Right. By investigators. Yeah. So you would think if there is a fault of the device and flooding will occur, they'll come up with a different device. Because the problem is not in the drug. It is in the Moby pack. Oh, clinical hold. Right. Immediately. You, you're put on clinical hold if anything like that happens. If one instance like that happens, you're put on clinical right. hold. Right. Yeah. So I call it a plot device because the fact that there can be flooding in the Moby packs is plays a significant role in the finale. But in this specific scene, they know that flooding can occur and they know that there's a lethal dose of Darkenflox, which will make someone freak out to the point where they can't control them. So why would you administer Darkenflox when one of the side effects of Darkenflox is thrashing around? And that's exactly what Heather yeah. does. And Heather hits her Moby pack and then there's flooding. Floods, and then she yeah. kills herself. Because So if there is any possibility that my test subject could accidentally flood on this drug and kill themselves, you wouldn't take it. You would like put the Moby pack in a padded area and have an, an IV, I, an IV yeah. right? Because you can jostle an IV, but you can have it, you, you can tape it like to your arm or something like that. So it's more of a control. Or you incapacitate the patient where they yeah. have like a, like a muscle relaxant or something. Like you would have a... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because yeah. It, so like Steve is freaking out at Mark because it's like, how could you let this happen? How? But the thing is, is like they know that the, the moat. The, yeah. There's, yeah. there's a flaw in the administering system. So not only does in the finale, does Steve's Moby pack start flooding, but then I was gonna bring this up his too, phone yeah. breaks, but his phone breaks in a way where it's still working. It's still administering drugs, but you can't, it's going at just a random pace. So it's like almost broken, but not all the way. So it creates, again, another plot device that will get Steve to trip out at this right specific time for him to fly into a mountain. Mm -hmm. And it is just so, I'm like, there's nothing clever, more clever you could do with that. Like what Jeff could have done was do with um, Mark's help, time out the drugs right on the phone so it's a scheduled delivery mm -hmm. and then throw the phone down the fire chute mm -hmm. so steve can't access it so it's like happening no matter what because the system is in the cloud and uh i know even even now like my mind is going to like quality system management you know. yeah <laughs> it's <laughs> just so yeah. it's such a mess yeah it's, so it's disappointing. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's so easy. Ugh. But I do love the moral dilemma that Mark is going through where he says, and this line is not in the short story, where Jeff is talking to Mark and it's like, how could you work for this monster? And Mark says, there are so few geniuses in the world, which is true. But he's like, I wanted to make a difference. And you can understand how someone is allured by this otherworldly intelligence who's creating drugs under the guise of wanting to save humanity, but really it's more of my ends justify all means, and those means are abusing and killing prisoners. Yeah, I, to I have two things to say about that. Shoot. The first thing is that the pharmaceutical industry is specifically by nature one of the greatest frameworks to have a conversation of greed through 
-hmm. because the windfall that can happen if you do have a drug that's approved is massive. Like you really can't, you literally could become a billionaire if you have like a chemical compound that you get approved. Of course, you have to put a lot of money in. You have to pour money into clinical trials. But if you do have a really successful drug, you can make millions, if not billions of dollars. Yeah. So that is really interesting. And I think that conversation is brought into the movie really well, especially when Steve and Jeff have this whole conversation where they get drunk and you are it's kind of inferred that they're also kind of self-medicating with the investigational drug. Um, but it becomes a conversation about like Jeff, not so different from Steve. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that idea of like, their crimes are very different, but mm -hmm. I think what they want is really similar. And I think the, again, like I've talked about this before, but the idea of a complex villain is really interesting to me. I think Steve might've been someone who was very interested by helping the greater good originally, mm -hmm. but then was corrupted, but that by the possibility of making a lot of money and so that's an interesting conversation right. um through pharmaceuticals because it, it can happen um, it's like another prong to the trolley problem which is like do you save one person kill five? It, you know it's the needs of the many yeah. or the needs of the individual or the needs of the many in favor of money that that was kind of the second thing that i was going to say like yeah. kill a couple people but, you know, with this idea that maybe you can make people happy. The, I, I have to think about this a little more too, though. Like, the thing that's weird to me is that he's developing a drug that will create full control. Mm -hmm. So he's not after the drug that could create euphoria in people or the feeling of love for people. Mm -hmm. So I'm confused about what he thinks he could market that toward. Well, like, he already has basically created the drug for love and for euphoria. He just hasn't, you know, released it to the public. Maybe he doesn't have the desire to do that. But in his rant at the end of the movie, he was saying he could sell peace and harmony in yeah. a vial. Oh, yeah. Oh, that was another thing I was going to talk about, about, like, the commodification of, like, something that should be free. Right? Mm. Like, right, love and affection yes. and, like, even something as simple as friendship that you can extend. But, but the idea is that there's, like, a relationship, but you can't commodify that. Mm -hmm. And, like, he's trying to do that. I think that goes to support the fact that he was really allured by this idea that he could become even more successful or more wealthy yeah. by commodifying something that should be free-flowing and available to everybody. And I, and I, I mean... That's the thing that kind of complicates Steve's character in the movie over the short story, which I think is actually a smart thing. They just didn't completely bring it to fruition because we see that he's pained mm -hmm. because he self-administers. He has a modipack. Right. So he's self-administering drugs, and I feel like they could have developed that into like maybe a partner of his died or something traumatic could have happened in his past. But they do have a little snippet that he is sensitive about people calling him Mr. Abnasty because his dad because left. His dad, okay. So well, there is a little bit of that, and it's not substantial. But it would be interesting to have more of a conversation about that and how he's trying to get that back, or how yeah. he thinks he could like get his father back by like administering 
a drug that would create a feeling of love. Yeah. And that would be even more interesting because then that's not a romantic love. That's parental love that should be free flowing, but it's not. Yeah. For him. Because, yeah, his real life dad left. So he's creating a drug that alters the emotions in his brain where he can feel that. Right. Yeah. So that if they had delved into that a little bit more, I think that would have been a meteor conversation. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, I think there's and, and again, that idea that like he had that in mind at first. And honestly, like it's not crazy that drug developers sometimes test stuff on themselves. Right. That is honestly not uncommon. It's not technically legal, but if you have consent and you feel comfortable with putting your own drug in your own body, you can do it if you have right an IV or something. You know, like it, it does yeah. happen. I think it's an interesting conversation that maybe he started doing that, but then he realized that it was actually a really successful drug, but then he got allured by the monetization of that. Um, right. We just don't get that fully realized right sorry i feel like i'm nope. rambling a lot in oh, this episode. she says this every episode <laughs> she goes like this please um well it's crazy it's been an hour and we have not brought up chrissy hems chris hemsworth he shouldn't so, have used an american accent but he was great in this other than that i think the director could have let him use his native australian accent but yeah i mean i i guess so there's nothing i love more than actors playing against type, especially actors yes. who, who are known for playing a hero or a good guy, playing a bad guy. So Chris Hemsworth, known as Thor, everyone loves him as Thor, right? Mm -hmm. He has such a charisma to him that, because in the first two Thor movies and the first Avengers, he is like a blank slate. Mm -hmm. And then our boy Taika Waititi comes in and is like, no, we should harness Chris Hemsworth natural comedic ability and have him be funny mm -hmm. thor ragnarok comes out amazing it's great you did preface that movie with this is my favorite avengers movie when i first saw it yeah and now chris Hems everyone loves him he's a great gifted actor he was great in um, bad times of the el royale yes this, that was another time he got to play the villain yeah so oh, that was so good yeah he's and he was doing um a california accent in that mm -hmm. um valley uh, uh, yeah beach bum yeah valley accent and that i thought was well done his american accent in here you can definitely tell despite his charisma despite his great acting abilities you can tell that it's not his natural accent i guess this is just a head scratcher for me uh, it i mean i would I would say it ventures into pet peeve territory where actors that have a natural any type of accent are asked to do an American accent. If it's, okay, this is my opinion, but if it's integral to who the character is, I say use an American accent or use an accent that's not their natural. Mm -hmm. This movie was filmed in Australia, and I almost think that it'd be interesting to embed a prison storyline in australia because historically it's mm -hmm. a it's a prison state <laughs> yeah um but the fact that it was filmed in australia and stars chris hemsworth i did you to me it's just you don't have to explain the yeah. origins of people we're a globalized society now yeah it's okay i work with people who are from different countries yeah. and i'm not like why don't you have an American accent? Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know what I mean? So, so I just always wonder why people think that will be more successful. 
I think there are really successful actors who can do it. We've talked about people in the past that are great at doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's just kind of a thing where you go, oh, that one R was was missed. Like, Quana or something that... Yeah. I don't know. It ah, it just bugs me. It's one of those yeah. things. No. He, he could have been Australian and it wouldn't take him away uh, from his character. Agreed, so, yeah. That's all I'm saying. Yep, I, I completely agree. But he is pretty excellent as um, Abnesti. Yes. There's not, since the source material is a short story, we don't get a lot of description of Steve. The one detail that we do get is that um, Abnesti is older and overweight and balding. Which is mm-hmm. Chris Hemsworth is the opposite mm-hmm. of that. He, Chris Hemsworth is six three. Is, I think pretty much Bloodjust. everyone can agree has the physique of mm-hmm. a Greek statue. Uh, is well, he plays a Nordic god. Yeah, so. exactly. <laughs> he I has mean, the build of a Nordic god. <laughs> yeah, he could not have been made up to be more of a model than in this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's with the with the suit Summer and the suits, glasses yeah. and and the and you know the light five o'clock shadow the perfectly quaffed haircut yeah i mean he is just the complete opposite than that one sentence description of abnesty so of course since it's a movie you get more time with the character more development but what's retained from the short story is that in, in both versions steve represents the utilitarian argument of the trolley problem which is that the needs of the many outweighed the needs of the few. Mm-hmm. That's what Spock <laughs> said, right? Like, he is willing to sacrifice mm-hmm. these prisoners for this greater good, but, I mean, we kind of come to understand that it's more greed and notoriety that's propelling him. Whereas Jeff, in both stories, is representing the humanity side, but is also closer to Immanuel Kant's philosophy, which is that the ends do not justify the means. It's not that the individual is worth more than society. It's that both the many and the individual are worth the same. Yeah. Meaning that the trolley problem cannot be answered because you cannot value one life over five lives when mm-hmm. they're both the same. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of the... I like how that is retained um, in the movie. And that's certainly interesting which is what makes it all the more disappointing that then the finale results to, okay, a fight scene, some poor screenwriting, and they've escaped. When it's like, no, actually, maybe retain that dark, twisted ending of the short story and have Steve have a vision of escaping, but really he's just tripping out on the drugs mm-hmm. that Abnesty gave to him at the last minute. Like, they still could have a fight or something like that. But you can retain that overall thesis of the short story while also going, you know, you can re- retain that darkness while also being like a fun blockbuster, right? And this just goes for a dumb blockbuster at the end, which is very disappointing. Well, well, one of the differences that we haven't specifically highlighted is the title of the short story, which is actually Escape from Spiderhead. And... At the end of the short story, you understand that the escape is Jeff dying. Yeah, the mental and escape. The mental, and that's, like you were saying, is really dark. And I don't feel that tragic escape as much as it is the right thing. I mean, it's so sad. Like, he thinks about his mom yeah. as he's dying. It's fucking tragic. He, he thinks about his mom and, like, how he's sad that his mom will lose him, but 
how, like you were saying earlier, there's there's another type of drug that's flowing through his system, and so he's also euphoric about this death and the fact that he's he's not a killer anymore and he decided not to kill because he had the choice in this one instance. Like, that's that's an incredible way of interpreting the word escape. Yeah. Whereas in the movie, it's literal. It's literal. And I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It's just like, oh, they fucking stole a boat and drove right past the police and they've, like, physically escaped. But they're not having a conversation about how the complexity of their of the fallout isn't really going to be an escape. Right. Right? They're physically free, but that doesn't really mean a lot when you're a fugitive and you haven't come to emotional terms with the fact that you both have killed someone. Right. Yeah, that second part is definitely big, that they haven't made that leap in, ter- in their own development. Yeah. I, there's some spotty writing where, like, Steve is like, oh, Jeff, you you were free to go, like, six months ago, and yeah, Lizzie, you were free strange. to go a year ago. But wouldn't they be asking about... Well, actually, I mean, here's the thing. They feel like they deserve the punishment. Right. But at the same time, it's like... Because they escaped at the end, you know that they wanted to get out of there. So why wouldn't they be asking about how long they had right. in the prison? And and if they were asked to do something that made them uncomfortable, the first thing that Jeff could do was stand up and say, Hey, dude, I'm free. Right. You don't have to make me do this because my sentence was up six months ago. Well, well Jeff didn't know he was free. But then what he could have been was like, I don't like this anymore. How long do I have in here? Yeah, yeah. Simple question. Yeah. And and I think that's what really niggles at us, right? It's yeah. The, it's the simple questions like we were talking about in Harry Potter. <laughs> as soon as Harry's name came out of the goblet, all Dumbledore had to say was, you're underage, I'm sorry, you can't compete, end of movie. Yeah. So it's like that stuff where there could have been something really deep that I think the short story succeeds in where the movie had to kind of draw things out and that's where things started falling through the cracks. Right. If it was just one thing, fine. But... There are so many little nitpicks that you can make of this movie that it just completely ruins the compelling arguments that they're making. I mean, there's just nothing deeper to the movie, which is is uh, a big disappointment. Well, and even adding a layer to that, the layer of consent, too, because yeah. there's not technically consent behind the word acknowledge, which is kind of a consistent motif in the book and the movie every time the subject is asked if the if steve can administer a drug they have they're required to say acknowledge before he can dose them Mm -hmm. but the idea that consent is not based on any kind of reciprocal action or like at one point there's uh steve holds over like 10 extra minutes of zoom time with Jeff's mom over his head Mm -hmm. that's not consent the fact that he says acknowledge means absolutely nothing so that idea of like nature versus nurture but consent is a really key building block Mm -hmm. of nature yeah (laughs) like yeah yeah there could have been more conversation even even around consent I think definitely but I we should talk a little bit more of what the movie did well so I think what the movie shares with the short story is that they're both very sexy stories. They're very sensual. And because a big part, especially of the short story, is the love drug that they're testing, which makes you completely fall in love, both romantically and sexually, with whoever you're around. Yeah. 
The book goes into heavy detail about that. So does the movie. It helps that Miles Teller and Lizzie, um, who do not have a scene together on the drug, but outside of that, they have such chemistry that you feel the uh, you feel the heat. Yeah, you really do. Between I, them. I think that's not necessarily a couple that I would have put together. But yeah. as soon as they're on screen, you're like, oh, damn. Like, are they dating? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are they a thing? Are they uh, a thing? But... I think no shade to their current partners. I'm sure they're very happy. <laughs> yeah, but both stories are very sensual and kind of a, a fun way that feels like you're reading something naughty, but is still eloquent at the same time. The movie also looks spectacular. It's shot by Claudio Miranda, who shot Tron Legacy, and he shot Top Gun Maverick, which is incredible. I mean, he was in charge of putting the IMAX cameras sensors in the planes that they flew because they were Amazing. they were flying real planes right but you cannot put a whole ass camera in in a cockpit a cockpit <laughs> so he would take out the sensors which is something in the camera that if it even jostles that's you know a ten thousand dollar camera that is broken mm -hmm. so is a crazy amount of work that he put into it. he won an oscar for his work on life of pi um <laughs> He he. We we should cover that though. That that would be an interesting movie. Even definitely, though it's not a great movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and he also shot the Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which is David Fincher. So you know that that movie is also just visually immaculate. The movie it looks great. I mean, especially it's kind of funny. The most gorgeous scenes in the movie are the flashbacks of him drunk driving with the sunset. I mean, it looks picturesque. It's very it's. I don't know, I, it's kind of twisted in a funny way that that's mm. the most beautiful part when it's a horrific accident. But from a production standpoint, it looks it looks good. It's well, slick. It, um, Jeremy Hindle's production design is also futuristic and dystopian and minimalist. I like it. Agreed. I also think it brings up an interesting discussion about how much money Netflix can pour into a quote-unquote art house movie because mm -hmm. technically this would be considered art house yeah it didn't have a massive budget but it's also Netflix money so yeah. it's like is it art house because it's mainstream it's streaming although it was limited release in theaters but it also has a couple of pretty big names connected to it mm -hmm. and I think it's an interesting conversation to I guess purely because Danny and I recently watched both of these movies, but Spiderhead juxtaposed with Fresh because mm. we get Sebastian Stan, who's now dabbling in a lot of art house movies that are like actually art house movies. Yes, you know what I mean. That have like smaller budgets. He's also in the Marvel, in the Marvel universe, but it's a very different feel. Well, I'm gonna go another layer here. Netflix made Power of the Dog with yeah. Bene Benedict Cumberbatch, who is also in the also Marvel. Also in the Marvel. Oh my gosh, all of these cinematic universe crossovers, the multiverse. I know, so you can tell. <laughs> but multiverse is a different story. Yeah, oh yeah. I, I'm sure that's what you're We don't even have to get into that. Excuse I, <laughs> me, yes, um, continue. Netflix, and a lot of times Netflix just buys something made by another yes. production company or they wholesale beans to nuts or whatever the <laughs> phrase is. Them's the crackers. Yeah, um, they build something from the ground up. So I think Power of the Dog and this movie is a case where it started with Netflix buying the rights mm -hmm. and then producing it. So it's weird how Power of the Dog can be given so much love and care and craft into it. And this movie 
has love and care in terms of its like production values and its visual looks, yeah. which is a testament to Joseph Kaczynski and his team that he's been working with for his whole career. But the the gosh the darn writing. script is yeah. like doesn't live up to George Saunders' profound writing, and all it takes is one element to be sour to bring everything down. And unfortunately, this suffers from multiple. Right. And the, a big reason why I was excited about it is because it seemed like Netflix was bringing back the, quote, mid-budget movie, which are very mm. scarce today. Mm -hmm. So basically what we have now, especially after the pandemic, is you have mega-budget hits that people are seeing in the movies, like Spider-Man No Way Home, Top Gun Maverick, which we're happy about, uh, the new Doctor Strange movie starring Cumberbatch. These are huge hits that are making more money than movies would make before the pandemic. Yeah. And that's not because of inflation, just more people, the number of people going to the movies since theaters are opening back up is more than before. So this is a good sign for the big budget movies. It is not a good sign for the mid-budget movies, which are not low risk, low reward, nor is it high risk, high reward like the blockbusters. It is, let's spend... 20 to 40 million to make 50 million. So those movies are disappearing. What you have is either the big budget or the micro budget, like something like Fresh, which was made for a small budget of 10 million, was bought by Hulu for 17 million. Yeah. So that's a gross of 7 million. That's a lot of money, Yeah. right? But what studios are not doing are the mid-budget movies, which is a high risk for not that big of a reward but the mid-budget movies you can get these really complex things they for mid-budget you don't have to dumb things down for a mass audience because you're not looking for a mass audience you're right you're looking for a big audience but you're not spider-man trying to appeal to every single quadrant yeah i i was when you said you're not looking for a big audience the thing that i think is really interesting is that there always will be a movie buff audience. Yes. And like, those are the people that you're trying to entice by being complex and art house and careful mm -hmm. and respectful of a story. Mm -hmm. There's always gonna be an audience for that. Yeah. I mean, l listen, Collider, Cracked, Variety, all, like those types of, news outlets have an audience because there always will be this built-in audience that's passionate about good film. Yeah. And so I think me if that's a target audience, target them, don't be sloppy like this movie because it started out really well, but then lost every single review that I read about this. I think it has like a 2.5 rating out of five on like Google reviews. And that's just from me like doing not a lot of research yeah. into reviews, but I read, I did read a lot of reviews and every single person that's watching this is like, it fumbles the ending. Yeah. It doesn't do justice to the story. We're people who care about cinema and right. you lost us. So that's a really important audience to cater to. It really is. It's, it's a big audience. Yeah. I wanted this to be a sign of the return of the mid-budget, but it certainly is not at all. Uh, listen, I'm happy movies are back. I'm happy people are going to see the movies. I mean, everything, everywhere, all at once. Mm is another example of mid-budget that cost around around 30 to 40 million and is almost going to crack 100 million which is like insane for that type of movie but 
other than that, there's not too many other examples. And I love sci-fi stories. I love complex, intriguing sci-fi stories. I thought Kaczynski could have a two-hander here, but... Mm -hmm. uh, not quite. Not, not quite. It's disappointing. But it is not a complete wash, right? I, no, yeah, I mean, it, it brings up interesting conversations. Yeah. And that's what art does and should do. Definitely. And last, speaking of art, I had another question. So a similarity between the short story and movie is there's that diagram of all the people um, that slept with each other. And I thought it was, I thought it was funny in the short story. I thought story. it'd be interesting. Right, yeah. Tim Robinson. So it's, that's also in the movie, almost the identical thing. And I wanted to get your input that as someone who works in that field, oh, do you ever come across something like that? Or is that kind of a uh, creation for, for, from Hollywood? Listen, I almost wish that there were more visual diagrams of what we call a schedule of events, which is like clinical assessments, which can mean anything from like a blood draw to a lung scan to an x-ray. And it protocols can be so complex that sometimes it is really important to give people visual aids to help mm. understand what could happen to like a single patient or a cohort of patients or something like that. There's never going to be though, like a PowerPoint printout page of squiggly lines of people who fucked each other. Yeah, it is funny, <laughs> but it's not true. Comical. Yeah. And, and to be honest, actually, I thought that it was even well, it was better done in the short story because it's actually Jeff's character who starts to figure out the web of people who are connected. Oh, you're right. Yeah. And so it's something that a patient did, which again, by the way, that would all be like explicitly explained in a consent form. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's something that if you were involved in a not above board clinical trial, a subject could be very interested and say, oh, like something's wrong. Like I was dosed at this amount, but I talked to X patient, they were mm -hmm. dosed this amount. So they could start kind of mapping something. That was kind of intriguing to me. If again, a kernel of another sci-fi film, you have a subject who's suspicious of what they're being given or the system and they start figuring things out that way. In the movie, it's literally like a PowerPoint slide that's printed out with squiggle lines and yeah. names. And I'm just like, that's not a... <laughs> Right. Like, he could have made it look a little yeah. different. Um, so, answer, no. <laughs> gotcha. Um, final question. So, I loved the addition in the movie of the reveal that there is no protocol committee. Yeah. So, Steve is like, oh, I got to go outside real quick to uh, to ask the protocol committee. After, yeah. the, you know, Miles Teller uh, says, like, you know, you can't. You can't get my uh, permission mm -hmm. to do this test. And he goes out. It runs into Lizzie. Lizzie says, like, hi, Mr. Nasty. And he goes, is my dad in the room? Yeah. <laughs> uh, super funny. <laughs> it's a good moment. And then he yeah. walks in. I, I like that twist. A little predictable. Still, though, well done. I'll give the movie mm -hmm. credit. I'm curious of how protocol committees work in the real world. Is anything like that? Yeah. I, if there's a significant health concern. Mm-hmm. Let's say a patient has respiratory issues, something that's pretty serious, uh, which is like a specific term, serious adverse event. It is the responsibility of the PI to immediately assist the concern, like mm -hmm. intubate the patient, something like that, um, because you don't want the patient to, to die. Um, that is the only, the, the only exception 
for something not being given a 30-day review. <laughs> gotcha. So the idea that an investigator, and and not even like the sponsor. So we find out that the quote-unquote sponsor, was, which is the Abernasty company, that would be considered like the sponsor who's like pouring money into the... Mm-hmm. Like, it would be a massive conflict of interest. It does happen that a doctor could be working for a company, but all of that has to be like above board and declared in like a financial disclosure disclosure form. So it, it happens, but that's a massive conflict of interest that has to be assessed. But the fact that like not only a sponsor, but a PI could go and make a call to a protocol committee and say like, oh, in three minutes, I'm going to do like a protocol deviation. That would be an immediate like clinical hold audit finding absolutely not hmm. no <laughs> like buzzkill no. yeah, <laughs> like that that to me that was almost like a laughable moment where i was like oh god if clinical trials were because again like i do i perform a lot of audits on on clinical sites and if we found out that a that a pi had committed a protocol deviation and not even reported it we're That's taking them no off no. the study we're yeah. taking them off the study and then that takes all of the subjects that they've enrolled in a clinical trial off drug, off investigational product. So like that, that would be a massive deviation and a serious breach and that would be reportable. So no, that wouldn't happen. <laughs> Understood. Thanks for those questions. Thank you. I like answering questions about the pharmaceutical industry because I do actually really enjoy working for it and we're not all bad. <laughs> I mean, you are bad. We're not, they're not all bad. Well, final rating for the stories that could never happen. I just wanted I, one fun fact. Oh, go ahead. I don't know. Did you find any fun facts about this? I have one fun fact I've about the movie. I've said them also. Okay, so there's a character named Rogan. And in one scene, we see Rogan reading The Tenth of December, which is the collection by George Saunders that Escape from Spiderhead is included in. Very cool. It was published in 2013 with this as one of the, like... 10 stories that are in that collection. Awesome. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. I didn't notice it when we were watching the movie. So the fact that it was all over the internet when I Googled Escape from Spiderhead was embarrassing. Cool. Nice. <laughs> that was my only fun fact. So Very cool. Yeah. So out of four stars, what would you rate the story in the movie? Um, Short story, maybe three out of four stars. Okay. I, li- I liked it a lot. And I think it has some good questions. Nice. Um, It's not... George Saunders' fault that I can't get over the fact of how impossible the drug development process is in yeah. the story. Um, not his fault at all. I think the writing is brilliant. Like you mentioned, the language that's used while on and off drug is really intriguing. Yeah. Um, it really proves what the drug can do to the brain, what any drug could do to the brain. Uh, so three to four. And then movie, I can't fault the first half. And that's yeah. what makes it really hard to rate. Um, but I'm going to say like, I'm, I was so disappointed by the end that I'm going to say two out of four stars. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. It drops the ball in every sense of the word. So two out of four, the story is exactly my type of jam. I mean, it it is my writing, even my reading it. I understand that something like this probably couldn't happen, but I think the philosophy of it, how it tells a story, the near future setting is just exactly what I want um, out of story. Like, just be like Ex Machina, right? J- just be like that. Um, we gotta. Are we gonna turn that on after we finish recording? Definitely. It's been a while since we watched. Definitely. It. Oh, it's so yeah. good. Oh, and speaking of Marvel Universe, hello Isaac. Oscar, Oscar Isaac. Isaac. 
Isn't he the is he moonshine? In... Oh, guy? you're right, Moon Knight. Moon Knight. I, I totally forgot <laughs> that. I forgot about that show. This, the superhero that brews bathtub gin yeah. and sells <laughs> it on the underground market. Yeah. Well, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with our coverage of The Scarlet Letter and the movie Easy A. Uh, But in the meantime, please rate and review if you haven't already. We love you if you listen. We love everyone who listens to this podcast. And we'll see you on the next one. Peace.